I wanted to say before we got started here, just want to say thank you publicly to you for making my family feel so welcome here at Hope. We're still so new here and we have enjoyed the privilege of getting to know you and you've been gracious as we've been learning this process of pastoring here at Hope and so thank you for making us feel so welcome. I want you to join me now as we pray for our community. We're going to pray for the churches in our area and we accept that the mission's not done yet. We thank the Lord for what he's doing in, in the churches that are in our region. And we just want to lift them up and thank the Lord for those who are joining us in the chorus together today. So please bow together with me. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this privilege to worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, that this isn't the preamble to the football game that we'll watch later. This isn't a moment that we've chiseled out of our time, out of just routine. But instead, Lord, we believe that you're worth it. We believe that you're worthy of our praise. You're worthy of our best. And we don't take for granted the privilege to worship together. We pray for those who are fellowshipping at Heartland uh, with Dave Ambrose. We thank you for Living Hope and Medina. We thank you for Columbia Station, Christ Church in Columbia Station, Doc there. We thank you for uh, Pastor Jonathan and the team at Grace and Middleburg Heights and Pastor Austin. Shaw. We can just keep going. We're so thankful that we get to be a part of a community. Uh, but Lord, we also recognize that in our community, there's churches that are closing their doors. That in our community, there have been those who are discouraged in the ministry. And Lord, we just thank you that this is your ministry, that you're the good shepherd. We submit to your leadership. We thank you for the way that you work. Lord, that we, we never want to be surprised by your provision. We never want to be discouraged by our circumstances. But instead, we want to be people who submit to your leadership in our lives. So we're honored to be here together. We don't take for granted that we um, have the ability to... Uh, to worship and have electricity and heaters and all those things. And, and even as we transition from lemonade to hot chocolate in our church, that we accept, Lord, that you've blessed us abundantly. So be glorified in this place today. We ask that we would be people that submit to the truth of your word. Lord, we thank you that it's good, that your love endures forever. And we ask that in this place today, you would be glorified in it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. World War II, one of the most successful campaigns was led by General Patton, and it was in a part of Morocco, Casablanca. We know the name, maybe you've heard of it, but that, that objective where they went from land, sea to land, would have been one of the most successful in the history of American um, fighting overseas. And one of the stories that surrounded that was that after this successful um, this attack happened that the, the other general, the one that lost, ended up giving Patton an award. It was so significant because of how successful this was. It's an amazing story. But I want you to imagine for a second that you were one of those 330,000, I'm sorry, 33,000 individuals that were about to go into that battle. Then I want you to imagine now for a second, uh, you have to use your, your creative imagination that you're standing in that line because we've all seen war movies, right? The general has to walk and give the speech beforehand, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? Like usually it's on horseback or something. So you're in the line. The, the general is walking, and we know General Patton is famous for so many interesting quotes. Like, can you picture him saying, a good plan violently executed right now is far better than a perfect plan executed next week, right? You can hear him say that. Or, lead me, follow me, or get out of the way. Can you picture the general saying that? 
But as you're standing in that line, can you imagine for a minute that you, you raise your hand as he's in the middle of his speech and you say, uh, Gen General Patton, uh, as we're preparing for this attack tomorrow, I uh, just decided I'm not feeling it. So I'm just going to hang out here while you guys go do it. Can you imagine for a second? Like you go ahead, you do what you got to do, right? Or, or another response, can you imagine for a minute that the the general gives the command and then you decide that you're just gonna go on your own. You're gonna take one of the 100 boats that they used and you're gonna go start the fight that night. You're not gonna wait until, it sounds so silly, right? But those two responses are two common responses to the way you and I approach prayer. The way that we respond to prayer in the hands of a God that is our general, that he's our king of kings, he's our lord of lords, that he desires for us to care more about, let's just say he cares more about us figuring out his will than what we do, right? Like that he, he is a God that understands his creation, that he's got a plan that he's working out, that he's orchestrating the details of our lives in a way that we can trust him. And yet there's a component when it comes to our prayer life that, that we can see it as an evidence of how much we choose to depend on him. Or are we the kind of people that, that don't pray first, but pray second? That it's an afterthought, that we, we decide that we're going to act, and then after we act, that we're going to say, God, would you bless what I just did, right? Would you, would you help fix the mess that I just made? Or Lord, would, would your will, would my will be your will? Can you imagine that prayer, right? But we pray that way all of the time. And there's a component this morning as we dive back into our study through the book of Nehemiah that, that we're going to find ourselves seeing Nehemiah be a man who chose to submit to the leadership and authority of God in his life. That he was a man that prayed radically. In fact, we know that he prayed for four months straight. You think about that. Have you ever prayed four months for anything in your life? Like even like the spouse you're going to marry and spend the rest of your life with, did you pray for four months for them? Some of you are saying, nope, I didn't. But there's a component of this that as we stand on the outside and watch Nehemiah, what we recognize is that he was a man who chose to submit to the leadership of God in his life. And he's going to teach us a model for prayer. We're going to see it in the verses early on that he gives us a glimpse into the types of prayers that he prayed before he went to King Artaxerxes. And this prayer is going to contain in it the sense of adoration of the Lord, a sense of of confession before the Lord. Remember, confession is always telling God what he already knows about us, right? Shouldn't be an aha moment when it comes to confession. But there's an element of thanksgiving. And then finally, after all of that, we see that Nehemiah supplicates or he asks the Lord for his, um, for the Lord to work on behalf of God's people. And even in that, there's this component with Nehemiah where he's just aligning himself with the perfect will of God. And there's a component of that kind of prayer that I have to confess to you, I haven't always done in my life. In fact, when we were in seminary, coming towards the end of our time in seminary, we got a call through our senior pastor there, Gene Getz, and he said, there's a pastor in the Bahamas that has asked if you and Allie would be interested in going to, um, to do first a consulting trip for like a week and a half in the Bahamas. Are you interested? I'll just confess to you, I did not pray. <laughs> the answer was yes, like we're, we're in. 
And uh, Allie was working at the time. I went first. And uh, to be honest, that visit was terribly hard. I was in, we were in two different car accidents. I was in a car accident and realized that I wasn't in Ohio anymore or Texas anymore. I was in a car accident where we were pulling out of a gas station. I wasn't driving, thankfully. And these guys pulled in, knocked the bumper off of our truck that we were driving in. And instead of like exchanging insurance, which is the right thing to do, right? The guys went into the building, got a drill and drilled the bumper back onto the front of the truck. I am not kidding. And we drove away. Everything was fine. Just a couple of screws, you know? When we stayed at the home that we stayed at, this family is lifelong friends with us, but we noticed and we went in that there were bars on the window so that we went through a gate that was, um, you know, steel gate. It was, it was heavy. It had, it had locks on it. And then when we went to bed at night, they actually locked another gate upstairs. And the reason is that the community that we were, we were in was tremendously violent. The cost of milk was about $8 for a gallon. And um, so we started to, like on this visit, we started to just see like how impractical and challenging this would be. Um, they don't just have rats. They have rats, you know. And, and there was a component of the reality of what we were experiencing that we had thought, you know, this is maybe something different. Well, the church extended an invitation for us to have a two-year work visa there to, to serve there. And in that process, I'll, I'll be honest, we just prayed. And we came back to Texas, still in seminary, and, and Allie and I didn't really even talk about it for three weeks. And, and I don't know if it was because it was so real. I don't know if it was because it was such a difficult decision for us or what, but I know we prayed. And we went to San Antonio together for a weekend during that time and sat back and remember, remember interacting with Allie and just saying, so like they need to know. They're asking us if we're coming or not. They need to work on our work permit. And Allie's words back have, have um, had a tremendously sim- significant impact in my life. And I, and I love the simplicity of the words that she said. She said, Sean, you believe that God's calling us to do this, right? And, and it was funny because I had my list. I'm a list guy. Anybody else a list guy? You know, pros and cons. And, but, but there was an element of this that it was just like when God asks us to do something, we just do it right? Like that, that's what it is. And, and I'll tell you, for those of you who are married, looking to get married, that's the kind of person you want to marry, by the way, is somebody who has said, Lord, I'm in. Like, what are you calling us? We do it. This is what we do. But, but the difference in that context was that we, instead of saying like, Lord, bless our dreams, gold, like, Lord, fulfill our vision, whatever it is. Like, instead, that moment marked in our lives a time where we just decided that we were going to obey him that we were going to take God at his word, that we were going to submit to his leadership in our lives. And we will say to you today that that was one of the greatest decisions we ever made in our life. It altered the course of our ministry, and we're so thankful. We look back on that so gratefully. But we just recognize that there was a component of that that meant that we had to trust the Lord. And Nehemiah, at the beginning of his ministry, when we get to see him, what we get to realize about Nehemiah is that he was a man who I think was pretty common, I think he was a man that was amongst others that could have done some of the things that he did. But what Nehemiah was distinct in, and something that I pray for us as a church, 
is that he was an individual who chose to submit to the Lord's leadership in his life first, that he prayed fervently. He prayed first, like this was what he did. His, his actions represented an individual that understood the value of prayer. In fact, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter one, and we're gonna pick up in verse four. We're gonna repeat the last verse that we studied last week, where we see this tremendous action from Nehemiah, but it's kind of a weird action. He, he humbles himself, he fasts, he seeks the Lord's face, he weeps, remember, for the plight of other people, that he's in a pretty good spot himself, and he finds himself humbly submitting to the Lord on behalf of other individuals. And what we're going to see here is this commitment in his prayer to adore the Lord, to confess, to show thanksgiving, and then finally, at the end of this, he submits and asks that the Lord's will would be done in his life and in the life of God's people. So follow along with me as we read this text. It's a beautiful prayer that he prays. He says, as soon as I heard these words, remember, this is the message from his brother that the walls in, in um, Jerusalem are still down, that he, he had expected that the walls would be further along, and they weren't. Uh, maybe he expected that Ezra, the prophet, would have been rebuilding the walls. But instead, what he heard is that the walls were still down. In verse 4, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes. It almost looks like he's asking for something here. But it, you know what he's really asking? He says, God, would you even hear our confessions to you as to who we are and who we are? And he says this in verse six. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. In verse seven, he says, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place I've chosen to make my name dwell there. And then he closes with these two verses where he cries out to the Lord, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Nehemiah understood something about prayer, and I believe it's essential for us to search our hearts in this area. How we pray says a lot about how important it is to us, right? Like how seriously we take it. Nehemiah took it so seriously that we're told in God's word that he prayed for four months. And in this context, as he prepares himself to do something that was tremendously risky, we're going to talk about it next week, to go before King Artaxerxes to uh, be humbled in, in, in the context of King Artaxerxes, to have a sad face, to, to potentially, what we'll learn is put himself at risk before the king. 
one of the things that we accept is that Nehemiah chose to be a person who prayed first before attempting anything else in his life. That this was the thing that was most important to him. Nehemiah, we know, was not a king, a priest, or a prophet, but he was an ordinary man that would inspire the extraordinary, the rebuilding of the walls. We talked about it last week in, in a tremendously short amount of time. And what we know about Nehemiah as well is that we know that he was a man of action, that prayer was his first action. We're, we're blessed to have in the book of Nehemiah a sister book to Nehemiah that came before it, the book of Ezra. In fact, originally Ezra and Nehemiah were one book originally, and they were separated later. And they tell the, the story of two different leaders, the way God worked through two different individuals. Ezra, in the process of restoring the place of worship and restoring um, the, the, um, the ability for God's people to submit to God's leadership, and Nehemiah, the process of rebuilding the walls. And this parallel, it's helpful. What we see is that God's working on two different fronts. And as of the good general, he's, he's working in a way that, that we may not have ever expected. You know, when it comes to somebody, I hope you have somebody in your life that you're praying for that they would hear the truth of the gospel. Do you have somebody in your life that's that way? I think often when it comes to that person that we hope and pray receives the truth of the gospel in their life, that, that we assume that we may be the only person that God can use to draw them to himself. But, but what we're reminded of in the truth of God's word is there's an element of this that, that we may have a small part in it. Some people sow, others reap. That, that we get to participate in the action of reaching out to that person, but it's not necessarily all our work that's going to be done. But ultimately, God is the one who's at work. And Nehemiah evidences this. In the entire book of Nehemiah, 11% of the book is devoted to prayer. It's a tremendously significant component of this book. And what we see is that Nehemiah, in the text, it says he sat down and he submitted to God for four months. I like the way Chuck Swindoll puts it, and he describes this. He says, here's the genius of Nehemiah's leadership. It's on display. He resists the normal temptation to pick up the conductor's baton and orchestrate the wall's reparation himself. Instead, he goes to his knees, beseeching the one whose place it is to conduct all of the affairs of men and to meld their efforts into one harmonious plan. What we know about Nehemiah is that he was a man who prayed selflessly, and he was a man who prayed deliberately, giving us a helpful model for what prayer ought to look like. We get to see his example, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication, that we get to see this model pan out in the way that he chooses to pray. The first thing that we see in the text here is that we see that, that Nehemiah was a man in verse 5 who adored the Lord, that he was a man who understood the importance of confessing. He was a man of thanksgiving, and ultimately he submitted to the leadership of the Lord. If you have not seen this before on the Lord's Prayer, some have looked at this, scholars, and said, hey, there's a, an ACTS component to help us remember this. And uh, when I studied this prayer from Nehemiah, I found that this is very crystal clear, that same model in the way Nehemiah prayed this prayer. The first thing that Nehemiah did was that he adored the Lord. He declared God's goodness. He uses the word awesome. He says, God, you're awesome. I think we use that word cheaply in our culture today, right? But there's, there's a component of this that he says, oh Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, 
who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. This, this is personal. This is delighted in who God is, that he's overwhelming with, uh, overwhelmed with the description of the very attributes and character of God. It's interesting that Nehemiah knew God's word and he remembered God's promises and he prayed those back to God. That's a great place to pray. When we know the truth of God's word, when we pray it back to him, God, you are. I've been a part of prayer meetings where we prayed just for the, the attributes of God or the characteristics of God, the, the place where we adore him. And, and we spent an hour just doing that. And I think we could have just kept going on because there's so many things about him that are profound. And here he describes the God of heaven in distinction from other gods. In that culture that they were in that day, there were a lot of lower G, lowercase g gods. There were gods that were worshipped. And in our culture today, we have a lot of lowercase g gods in our culture. And you'll hear me pray this sometime. I'll say, Father God, I love to pray, God, you're a good God. I, I want to clarify that there's a, the God of the universe that we're worshipping is not the same as the God of this world. Nehemiah knew God's word. He remembered God's promises and he prayed those back to God. I think it's important for us to remember. Why is God awesome? I don't know how he's been awesome in your life. He's been awesome in my life. And I want to be a person who remembers that and declares that back to the Lord. The second thing as we learn prayer from Nehemiah is that we see that he was a master at confession. And he's going to be a master at confession in a couple different categories. One of them is that he's going to confess in a corporate way. He's going to pray for the, he's going to confess on behalf of his people. He's also going to confess on behalf of his family. And then he's ultimately going to confess on behalf of his own life. He's going to say, even myself, I have sinned. You can see it in the text. And remember when we talk about confession, that we're telling God what he already knows, right? That he's painfully aware of the sin that is, has ripped apart our lives. But we see this in verse 6 that Nehemiah says this, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant. And I now, that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you. We have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that were commanded by your servant Moses. And then he goes on to say in verse 8, he says, Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, and there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. If you notice in the, the text that Nehemiah is not upset about the circumstances in such a way that he's blaming God, but he's taking full responsibility for the consequences of the sin of the people of Israel. That there's a component of this that he's accepting that it's not just his father's, it's not just his nation, but ultimately his own sins. There's a personal component to this. And I don't know why, but uh, for some of us, the, the natural tendency when it comes to sin in our life is to hide it. That, that it has the tendency to fester inside of our life and it doesn't heal itself. I like the way that Paul Tournier puts it. He says, true liberty is not found without confession of our sins and the experience of divine forgiveness. 
what we, we know is that in that context, we're talking about natural, personal sin that, that we take. And, and the individual, I've seen this happen so many times in my life. Some of this has happened in my own life that, that when I choose to allow other people into the struggles of my life, that there's a component of that, that they, they don't look as bad. And what ultimately happens is that there's a, a place that's created where healing can take place. But I think the deceiver wants us to be individuals that hold those things tight to ourselves, that we, we want to hide them. He wants to cover them with shame. Remember, he's known as the great accuser, right? That he wants us to hold those things to ourselves. And God is glorified in the process of us saying, you know what, Lord, I know, you know what's going on in my heart. And this even can happen for a nation. In the book of Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, this reminds me of the prayer of Nehemiah. It says this, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. There's, there's a component of this that, that as I look at this, that Nehemiah communicates to us this, this idea of confessing, whether it's for his nation or for his people. He's pouring out his soul in the midst of this confession. He's honestly admitting what was happening was not God's fault, but it was their fault. If you have a chance to study it later in the book of Ezra, where we get this other story, a similar story that is the same events, but from a different perspective. In Ezra chapter 9, 6, through, six and 7, Ezra describes the, the pain of his people, the failure of his people, the discouragement that comes from that, but he brings it before the Lord. And ultimately what we see is that we see that in the midst of confession, healing is possible. The next thing that we see in the text is that Nehemiah did something we saw the Apostle Paul do in the book of Colossians. I think it's an attribute of people who find joy in the world that we live in. And that is an individual that's good at just being thankful for God's provision. That they're grateful. They remember that we have so much. That God has blessed us. That, that I love to pray that God has provided for us so much more than what we need. In my family growing up, something that was just a little bit awkward is that I would, I would forget um, that my dad was going to... Um, my dad was a passionately committed to prayer person that he has been in his life that I shared last week a little bit about his painful story of growing up really without a father. But one of the things that my dad is committed to in his life is to pray, but it's a little awkward because he does it in his underwear and you don't expect it when you walk into his bedroom early in the morning. I know that's a bad image for some of you, but, but as a kid growing up in my parents' household in Dayton, Ohio, one of the, the strongest memories that I have is my father bedside beseeching, just praying out to the Lord on behalf of his kids. He, he didn't sit at the dinner table and say to us, hey boys, you need to learn how to pray. Never said, I never heard those words come out of my father's mouth. But what I saw in him in his lifetime and as he continues to be a prayer warrior is that he's a man who gets on his knees before the Lord, who, who cries out to the Lord, and in so many ways is a man who communicates his gratitude for God's provision. Here we see Nehemiah do that. He says this in verse 9. He says, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the utmost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have 
redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. That word redeemed is an amazing word. It, it's really the foundation for the series that we're going through. When we talk about restoration, that, that God is in the redemption business, that through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, when, when he says that the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost, what we recognize is that the Lord chose to die so that you and I don't have to. Then this restoration is something that is noted by Nehemiah in his words when he says, you have redeemed by your great power. Now there's a great story that came out a couple of years ago of some boys who their mom had passed away and they were cleaning out the basement. And under the ping pong table, they found this small canvas, looked like a painting. You really couldn't tell what was going on in the painting. So they took it to an antique specialist and he said that it was going to be worth probably about $250. And they were pretty excited about it. Like, that's awesome. Under the ping pong table, $250. Well, uh, that painting ended up going up to auction and it turned out to be a lost Rembrandt. And it ended up raising $1.1 million at auction. Now, now it was interesting that I saw a picture of it before it was restored. And you see it and it really looked like almost a black canvas. It needed to go through layers of clean, all, this, all that ping pong playing, I guess. That it had to go through a restoration process, but the precious value of it was revealed. It was always precious, right? But it had to be revealed what was underneath the layer of that. So what we see when we talk about this word redeemed by your great power and your strong hand is that Nehemiah was an, a man who understood that God is in the redemption business. And I suppose it's important for us to accept for some of us in this room when it comes to our prayer and avoiding confession and those things, is that the redemption process necessitates us being people who are willing to be honest with him, to come before him and to say, Lord, we're, we haven't arrived. We're a work in progress. We desperately need your help. Lord, would your will be done in our lives? There's, there's still cause. I love this about Nehemiah. There's cause to be grateful in the midst of a very painful season in the history of Israel. Nehemiah articulated that. And I, I love the way that he describes this redemption. It's, it's, it's essential for us to understand that, that, that for individuals like you and I, when it comes to living out the gratitude that God has designed for us to have, that there's a component of us that we have to be people who ought to be overwhelmed with a sense of gratitude for the fact that God's grace has led us to redemption. That we ought to be people who are just shocking on. Now, the, the great word response or worship as a response means that we understand what he's done for us and our lives are changed because of the work that he's done on our behalf. That's what it means to be thankful people. And then the final thing that we see from Nehemiah is that we see that he supplicated. He asked in Jesus' name. Now, this is so essential for us to catch the details of the prayer that he prays. And I think for some of us, we approach God like the divine vending machine, right? That we, we look at him and we say, Lord, we know what we want, and we, I'm going to ask you to fill in the details. I want you to give me what I expect to have. But instead, this kind of prayer embodies what the Lord Jesus taught us to pray as well, when he says, thy will be done. That there's a component of this prayer that says, Lord, I don't even know completely what I need or what I want, but I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you to help me to understand what it means to 
Ask in Jesus' name. You understand that that term is like an ambassador. That when we say that we pray in Jesus' name, that's not the salutation of our sermons, but instead it is us saying, if the Lord Jesus were here, how would he pray in this situation? And Nehemiah's words are powerful. He says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. It's funny, in, in a lot of superhero movies, they, they have this, the secret weapon that it seems like it always wait until the last minute, the last final moment when they break the thing out. And, and in so many ways, you look at this and Nehemiah is kind of looking at this and he's going, like prayer is the weapon, right? Like prayer is the, like the first thing that he wants to do is to go to that from the beginning, to take this so seriously, to, to pray in a way that honors the Lord, that submits to his will, that's grateful, that supplicates to him and says, Lord, would your will be done? Nehemiah's prayer was others-focused, word-based, and promise-based. That, that his prayer was big. It was a prayer that was worthy of God. I confess wimpy prayers sometimes. I confess little prayers. I, I like this story. A Christian school teacher said to a student, or was talking to a student, and, and the student said that his mom was a prayer warrior. So your mother says prayers for you each night. He said, what does your mom pray? And the kid replied, thank God he's in bed. <laughs> you, think, you think about our prayers, right? And some of them are quick. Some of them are cheap. Some of them are, Lord, would you redeem a bad decision that I've made? I love the way that E. Stanley Jones puts it. This is so profound to me. He says, prayer is surrender. Surrender to the will of God in cooperation with that will. If I throw out a boat hook from a boat and catch hold of the shore and pull, do I pull the shore to me or do I pull myself to the shore? Prayer is not pulling God into my will, but the aligning of my will to the will of God. That's, that image is, is beautiful and profound. That, that what I'm choosing to do is I'm saying, Lord, your will be done in my life. That I trust that you've got the bigger picture. That I confess that, that I, like that, gen, like that story that I started with, a, a person often that wants to be the person who's in control or want to do it on my terms. And I accept that the true prayer warrior, the individual that gets this right is a person that follows the model of Nehemiah. That that he prays your will be done in the midst of this. And you're never on better praying ground, brothers and sisters, than when you're praying God's word back to him. When you're submitting to him, that you're accepting, Lord, that your will would be done in my life. Nehemiah does this beautifully. He understood also, I love this at the end, that he understood the difference between fearing man and fearing God. Do you notice this last little section here. He says about Artaxerxes. Now remember who Artaxerxes is. He's one of the most powerful men ever to rule in the world. That he had kingdoms, he had palaces, he was authoritative, he was successful in so many ways. And in Nehemiah's prayer, and this last thing, he gives us this hint into his perspective on all of this. He says, and give to success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. He called God awesome. People in that day called Artaxerxes awesome, but he understood who Artaxerxes was and who Artaxerxes was not. 
And ultimately, he submitted to God in such a way, so awesome though, that he's going to ultimately have the courage to go to Artaxerxes. And he's going to say, I, I want time off. He's also going to say, now remember, Artaxerxes was the king who said it wasn't, they weren't allowed to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. He had made that mandate. And Nehemiah's going to go to him, not only ask for permission to rebuild, but he's going to ask for the stuff to rebuild it. And he's going to be asked for permission to be a part of the rebuilding process. It's awesome. His ask was a huge ask at the end of this. But what he did was he was a man who chose to put man in his place to understand God perfectly and to trust him. I want to go back to a part of our story when it came to moving to the Bahamas and, and the decisions that surrounded that. When we, when we had decided to make that move, one of the things that we found out the day we arrived in the Bahamas is that we were pregnant with our first child. And now you might say, oh, what's the big deal? Well, uh, we, we knew now that we were going to have a challenge. One, our cars only sat two people, um, but we were going to have another challenge, and that is uh, where are we going to have the baby? And most Americans there, recognizing that it's a developing country, that the, the normal pattern would be that they would fly back to America. We had insurance that would cover it, and we'd have, we'd have Karis in the States. Like That was the, the common pattern. But what we decided to do is that we decided to pray about it. And in that process, we just decided that what we felt like the Lord wanted us to do was to have her in the Bahamas. And there were friends, there were family members who thought we were crazy. It was, just, you know, we can show you pictures of the kinds of hospitals they thought she was going to be born in. But the, the doctor that delivered Karis, um, when we finally went through that whole process, his name was Dr. Hubert Minnis. And <laughs> Dr. Hubert Minnis is now, after that, been promoted to be the Prime Minister of the Bahamas. And I... I tell that story partially because I think when we went through this, there was a part of this that we were like, Lord, like, like, is this a safe place? Is this good? Can, I think if the dude can like, run the whole country, he's probably pretty competent, you know? And what the Lord chose to do is that he chose to, to bless us with his continued hand of provision, even in a foreign country, that, that he says, I got this. I trust you. You guys trust me. It's good. I, I care about you. I love you. I'm working on your behalf. And I think we hear this in the words of Nehemiah as he closes this time out. When he says, he says, Lord, would you grant me your favor with the king? Would you give me your will to be done? And ultimately, what we see in this man is we see a man who chose to adore his Lord. We see in this man a man who chose to tell God what he already knew about him. And that was to confess the sin in his life that he was a thankful man, and that ultimately when he asked the Lord's will to be done, the Lord was going to do a miracle. We, we throw that word around so cheaply, but that it could only be done with the hand of God at work. I don't know how you pray. I don't know what your prayer life is like today, but I believe if you start praying this way, your life is going to be changed because that's what the Lord desires for us to be as people who pray this way before a mighty king. Will you join me in prayer? Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word that you promise us that it will not be returned void. I pray for us that we would not just be hearers of your truth, but that we would be doers of it. And Lord, we, we begin this time just adoring you. We thank you for who you are. We confess to you, Lord, the things that are far from your heart, that have become comfortable in our life, that we've tolerated and that we've ignored, like like. The prophet spoke of Israel at that time, that Ezra would declare the people tolerating sin in their midst. And 
We confess that on behalf of our country, on behalf of our families, in our own personal lives. Lord, we're, we're grateful. You've provided for us so much more than what we need as a church, as a nation. It, but Lord, we, we ask, we beg of you that you would give us the privilege to be a part of your mighty hand at work. Would you allow us to be a catalyst for change, whether it's in our families, whether it's in our own personal lives, whether it's in our communities, whether it's in Northeast Ohio, whether it's in our state, whether it's in our nation. Oh Lord, we want to pray like Nehemiah prayed, having a living God who cared more about us getting this right than what we do. We love you. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.